Do you have an idea for a podcast, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you're overwhelmed by all the tech or you're convinced nobody will actually listen to you. Well, I'm Shauna Game. After nine and a half years as a professional podcaster, at this show, everyone's talking money. And 25 million downloads later, let me tell you the secret to a profitable podcast. It is building a solid foundation, your podcast roadmap before you launch. That's why I created the Podcaster Class, a fast-paced group cohort podcasting for profit eight-week style NBA program. The Podcaster Class is immersive, comprehensive, and insanely motivational. If you want to create a podcast, DIYing a launch is just not the way to go. In the Podcaster Class, you'll get the tools, tips, and strategies to create a podcast that resonates with listeners and one you can be proud of. Get this. 90% of podcasters never make it to episode three. That's 2.8 million podcasters who just quit. So to be a top podcaster, you only need to publish 21 episodes, but you got to make them good. So in the podcaster class, I'm taking the mystery out of how to create, launch, and profit from your podcast so you can create a top 1% podcast just like this one. The May cohort is now open for enrollment. Classes start May 22nd. There are only 15 spots open. You are going to learn podcasting with me and 14 other amazing people. You can learn all the details at thepodcasterclass.com. Use code podcast when you sign up for $100 off. That's thepodcasterclass.com. I'm going to be real with you. Identity theft is on the rise, and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. We talk about this often on the podcast, but you don't realize how much of your information is available to scammers on the internet and how susceptible you and your family are to identity theft and fraud. I know, it's scary, but now you can get your data removed with Delete Me. That's why I personally choose Delete Me. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft doxing, and phishing scams. I just started using Delete Me and I got my regular personalized privacy report. (laughs) I was shocked what they found and removed. It was pages of information about me that I did not want online. Here's how it works. You sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. I cannot tell you how relieved I felt to have Delete Me. And you know, it's also a great service for your parents or grandparents to help protect them from identity theft. Delete Me is not just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you do not want on the internet. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special price for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and use promo code etm at checkout. The only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and enter code etm at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash etm. Go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and use code etm for 20% off. Hey, I'm Shauna Compton Game. This is Millennial Money, and today we have another Ask Shauna listener question segment.
Millennial Money with Shauna Compton Game. It will expand your brain. So after the new year, there's always quite a bit of listener questions that you all uh, submit in, and I thought I would pick four today to uh, talk about. And I also would encourage you, if you have a listener question, I have a link in the show notes. You can go ahead and click on that link, head over and submit a listener question to me. And I'm more than happy to either answer it directly to you. So some of them I don't actually answer on the podcast. I may send you a personal email or I'll do both or I'll answer them on the podcast. So today we've got four questions. Um, There seems to be a lot of questions kind of as I would expect this time of year about taxes, about investing and saving. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the time of year where we're all really thinking about the different goals that we really want to achieve this year. And so that always just brings up a lot of questions. So our first question today is from Brett and Brett says, I'm paying in rent the same as I would possibly be paying with a mortgage. When do I know if it's okay to buy a house? I'm super nervous about buying a house and taking that plunge, but for some reason, I feel like I'm missing out. It must be FOMO syndrome. A lot of my friends are buying. Should I be thinking about that as well? And that's a great question. I get that question from a lot of you, Um, especially last year. I got a lot of house buying questions and we are going to have a podcast coming up uh, next week with a real estate expert where we're going to talk more about home buying. So I'm just going to kind of broad strokes this one, this answer for you, because it really is so individualized. It's it's really that way with a lot of things when we're talking about personal finance, you know, it's, it's really hard to give a definitive, well, you should do this or you should do that without really looking at your entire situation. So, um, again, I'm just going to kind of broad stroke my answer, but one thing I think you should be thinking about Brett is a, you know, that's great if your friends are all buying houses, but you don't know actually what financial situation they're in, right? So they could be in a great situation and it could be a great financial move from them. They maybe could have inherited money and, you know, are, are buying property or maybe, you know, they're a two income family and they've got a lot of, got a lot of savings, got a lot of income. I mean, or the reverse, right? Where they've bought something and they've got in totally over their heads. So there's a lot of things, you know, when you're when you're comparing and contrasting friends that I kind of want you to to just use an asterisk mark and go, okay, well, I don't know their actual situation, so it's really hard for me to decipher, you know, when they're telling me, hey, you should buy a house. Well, you don't really know what that means, and nor do they really know what your situation looks like. So it, it, it's just one of those things that I, for some reason I find people are always telling their friends, hey, you should buy a house, and then, you know, once things start happening with the house, like maybe something starts breaking down or they're remodeling the house, you know, then they come back to the friend and they're like, well, I don't know. Um, so, you know, I've, I've owned a house, I've, I've sold a house before and it was probably one of the best and worst decisions that I made. I know that sounds kind of weird to say, but it took a lot of money. It took a lot of money to keep it up. You know, there were, there were things, you know, in Los Angeles, you buy older houses. That's just that's just the way it is here. You know, I know a lot of you listening, um, in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, you know, maybe you can buy a brand new house and that's not to say that there won't be something that goes wrong with that brand new house. I've certainly have seen fair share of, you know, um, (laughs) 
bad, bad situations, lemon situations with, with brand new houses. But, you know, in Los Angeles, we have to buy older houses. And so buying an older house means that, you know, inevitably, if you live there long enough, something's going to happen. Um, and I always tell people, you know, when you're thinking about buying a house, like the best thing you can do is to remove your emotion. And it's really hard to do that because you get emotional because you want this thing, right? But, you know, the things that I always tell people to look at are how new are the windows? Are the windows good? How is the roof? Is the roof good? How are the uh, electrical systems in the house? How's the foundation of the house? And how is the plumbing? Those are all things that, you know, you can't tell just necessarily by looking at a house, right? You usually have to have an inspector. Um, I highly suggest you always have a house inspection before you're buying the house to find out these things because those are really like landmines um, just waiting to blow up for you. And you need cash reserves for that. So one of the things I want you to think about is if you're if you're thinking, you know, you're getting that sort of like heart palpitations, like you really want to buy a house, what situation are you in? Are you already comfortably saving 10 to 20% of your take-home income? Um, are you investing in your 401k? Are you doing a lot of the smart money moves? Do you have, you know, at least one to two months of fixed expenses saved in an emergency fund type account? You know, do you have these things set up where you are not living paycheck to paycheck every month? Because even if your mortgage is going to cost the same as your rent, but you are in a basically a paycheck to paycheck situation where you aren't able to save a lot of money, buying a house could possibly be the worst decision you make because, you know, when you buy a house, you got to make that mortgage payment don't make that mortgage payment. It's not like you can just easily, well, you can just walk away, but there are all sorts of bad things that happen to your credit and um, so on and so forth. So it's very different from renting. You know, if, if for some reason you got laid off from your job and you could no longer afford your rent, you know, you could, you could get out of your lease. Um, you know, there's, it's just a lot easier. So kind of look at, assess your situation. Like how am I foundationally before I start thinking about buying a house. Um, another thing, and this is a really super easy calculation that you can do is to make sure that, um, your payment interest taxes and insurance payment that you would be paying towards whatever you're purchasing is no more than 28% of your take-home pay. And this is a really super easy calculation. You don't need to be a finance person to figure this one out. You just literally find out what your take-home pay is and, you know, take 28% of that. And that's basically the number that you want to stay below, right? Um, and then another thing is, is go to the money people first, go to the mortgage broker first to get pre-approved, find out how much you can actually afford before you start going out and shopping for your house, because that always leads to, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of therapy sessions, a lot of emotional distress, because you fall in love with something that maybe you can't afford, or maybe it's a big stretch for. And the last thing I want you to do is to stretch to get into a house. So when I bought my first house, um, I was in my uh, low twenties and stretched to get into that house. Now everything worked out fine. Was able to make the mortgage payment every month. No big deal, right? But I would think about uh, two years into living in the house, had to replace all of the plumbing, and this was like a twenty at that time, like a twenty five thousand dollar expense. Well. I didn't just have $25,000 laying around. So it had to be super creative. So, you know, that that's what I mean. Like if you have this real healthy pad of savings and you're already able to save, you know, 
buying a house then could maybe not disrupt, you know, how you're already, um, building your financial foundation, it could add to it, right? But you just want to really assess your own situation and just tell your friends to kind of shut up for now, right? Unless they want to disclose like their whole entire, you know, finances with you, then you'll have a, you know, an eye to eye conversation about this. But I don't know why there's always so much peer pressure about buying something that's so expensive that's going to take you 15 or 30 years to pay off, right? Um, Buying a house is great. It can be, it can be a really smart move for you financially. It could be you know, something that you end up paying off and it could be your forever house. It could be something where in certain areas of the country, you purchase something and you get, you know, gain on your investment and you sell it and you make money and you roll into an even bigger, better house. You know, there's, there are lots of people that, that make smart real estate decisions by, by smart properties. Um, but then there are a lot of not smart decisions. So just really do your research. And again, we're going to have a great podcast on this coming up with an expert. So I think that's going to help, you know, answer kind of any other, um, questions that may be filtering out there. All right. The next question is from Nicole and Nicole says, Hey, here's a timely question. If we decide to have someone else do our taxes for us, what kind of place should we be going to? Cities usually offer tax assistance, but I found it to be super basic. And sometimes the people working there don't even know what to do. Yeah, that's not good, right? <laughs> Is an accountant or a CPA a better option? What about H&R Block? Happy tax season. Yes, so uh, by the end of January, you should probably get all of your 1099s and W-2s in the mail and you know start thinking about about tax time, um, April usually, April 15th usually always rolls around much faster than, um, than we want it to do. Certainly those of us who actually have to end up, you know, paying towards our taxes. So Nicole, yes, you know, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of hiring a CPA or an accountant. You know, one of the best ways to do it is to get referrals from friends or relatives, people who are already using somebody that they, that they like, that they can recommend, you know, maybe you can even get some sort of you know, deal of, you know, if they refer you in, um, and just like mechanics, right. There are good and bad ones. Um, you're either going to get somebody that's going to get, you know, everything running smoothly for you or, or something that's going to end up costing you a lot of money. And, and really you could have just used TurboTax and called it a day. So I always like to tell people to try and interview at least three different CPAs or accountants, you know, find out like, what is their client base? Like, you know, what, what's kind of their specialty, do they think they could bring anything to uh, to your taxes that that maybe you couldn't, you know, yourself? Um, a lot of people like H and R Block. You know, that's certainly not um, a bad option for uh, a lot of you. H and R Block might be kind of the only option. It really depends on where you live. Um, but if you do hire a CPA or an accountant, you know, you should expect to spend somewhere between two hundred dollars for a really, really super simple return. Um, and that's where maybe there's one person and you have one W2 and it's, it's super cut and dry, you know, up to about a thousand, you know, you can even some of big metropolitan areas get to 1500 or so. Um, if you're self-employed or run your own business, you're going to be kind of on the higher side there, but the benefit is that hopefully the CPA or accountant can help you figure out ways to be more tax efficient. Another thing, if you do hire a CPA or an accountant, please always read your taxes before you submit them. Look for mistakes. It happens all the time, even with the best CPAs or accountants. Um, I've caught many, many errors 
um, over the last 10 years that I've used uh, a CPA and it's not their fault. It's just, you know, something happened and, or I noticed something, or maybe I left something out. So just do your due diligence. Even if you don't understand everything, you can figure out the numbers, right? You can at least go, okay, um, I didn't make this much, or maybe I made more or, Oh, did I forget to include my charitable donation? Or maybe you pay for your own healthcare premium and you could deduct that. I don't, I mean, there's, so many different scenarios. And I'm going to try and do, you know, a couple of good, um, tax time podcasts as we're kind of rolling up to April. Um, so you can start thinking about that, but you know, I would say that if you have, you know, W2s and maybe a couple 1099s, again, 1099s mean that you've done some sort of freelance, um, business work, some sort of side hustle work, you might get 1099s. Know, then it might not be a bad idea to have a CPA or an accountant look at your last year's tax return and figure out if they could have saved you more money. That's also a good gauge of whether this makes sense or not, right? Because I certainly don't want you to spend money on something that you don't have to. If you have a really simple uh, tax situation, again, there's maybe one or two of you um, and you have a, a W-2 or two and, you know, it's, it's really simplistic, then you might not need to hire a CPA or an accountant. Also, there's a lot of, um, universities around that offer some sort of uh, tax clinic around tax time where, you know, students will work with, um, CPAs or accountants and, and help do returns. So, you know, check out any resources that are in your local area and see if they can handle whatever your particular situation is. All right. hope that helps. Okay. Brittany. So Brittany has, has kind of a, a big question for us here. And so, um, I want to make sure that I kind of do due diligence on this one as well. So she says all the books, articles, and advice I'm reading about retirement funds say diversify among mutual funds between foreign and national, small cap, large cap, and emerging markets, etc. And you're good to go. When I talk to my parents and grandparents about their investment strategy, they swear by handpicking dividend paying stocks in different sectors thereby benefiting from the regular dividend as well as any increase in value over a long-term hold. Is there a better option? As millennials totally overlooking these dividend stocks because investment plans built around a, a target retirement date is so simple. If so, what is the logistical way to balance mutual funds and dividend paying stocks and in which accounts, 401k, Roth, or other? Many thanks. Wow. Okay, Brittany, this is a this is a big big question and again, this is one where I'm going to have to do a lot of broad strokes because it is super individualized and you know this is why you know, you can read a million different articles about what you should invest in, uh what your retirement portfolio quote unquote should look like and still be confused and it's because it is really an individual um kind of activity because you've got to know, well, how risky do you want to be, right? If you want to be more risky or less risky, well, that's going to kind of alter your investment strategy. And again, just because maybe your parents and grandparents have chosen certain investments, that might not work best for your particular situation, for your life goals, for where you want to be. Um, or it may, you know, there, there are just so many different scenarios. So it's really quite impossible to totally answer that question. But let me just talk sort of 
generally about dividend paying stocks for those of you who don't know. And I found that Investopedia has just an awesome um, kind of definition. So I'm going to literally read this verbatim. I'm going to put the link in the show notes so you can read more. But they say many people invest in dividend paying stocks to take advantage of steady payments. So a stock that has a dividend actually produces income, all right? And the opportunity to reinvest the dividends to purchase additional shares of stock. So you get this dividend from um, from the stock and then you can automatically reinvest it so that you're buying more shares of the stock. Make sense? Okay. Since many dividend paying stocks represent companies that are considered financially stable and mature, the stock prices of these companies may steadily increase over time while shareholders enjoy periodic dividend payments. In addition, these well-established companies often raise dividends over time. For example, a company may offer a 2.5% dividend one year and the next year pay a 3% dividend. It's certainly not guaranteed. However, once a company has a reputation of delivering reliable dividends that increase over time, it's going to work hard to not disappoint their investors. All right, does that make sense? So traditionally speaking, dividend stocks normally are recommended for people that are closer to retirement because they do produce income. And usually when you move into that, you know, kind of last phase of of, of saving for retirement, that's what you're looking for, right? You're looking for all the income you can get or the ability to, you know, obviously reinvest that income. There are some myths that dividend stocks normally return um, lower returns than, you know, uh, stocks that don't offer, don't offer dividends. And there's a little bit of truth to that, but you know, it's been debunked a lot. So it really, again, it just kind of depends on the particular stock. Um, but the most important thing to think about is dividend stocks should be kept in tax advantage plans to really minimize tax implications. And there's something called qualified versus non-qualified dividends. So let's just talk about that. So what are qualified dividends? There are actually dividend payments that are taxed at the long-term capital gains rate. And that rate is lower than your normal income tax rate, right? So that's that's kind of what, what you want. So in order for a dividend to be called qualified, it must be paid by a United States company or a qualified foreign company. It must be paid from a qualified investment and shares must be held for more than 60 days before the ex-dividend date for common stocks. So what is a qualified investment? Well, most publicly traded, traded stocks are qualified. So in, in the real world, in the stock world, you know, stock prices obviously fluctuate, right? That, that should not be broadcast news to you. When a dividend-paying stock price declines and let's say the dividend isn't cut, the yield rises. And what this means is that dividend investors who are actually like reinvesting those dividends will be buying back more stock at uh, the most appropriate times when those share prices are lower. And this effect alone will boost returns um, past those non-dividend paying stocks. So the higher you know stocks volatility is, the greater the gains for this type of effect. Um, and, you know, investors really looking to kind of maximize like this long-term hold strategy, which is really what you want to do, especially if you're a millennial, um, you're going to look for high quality dividend paying uh, stocks, right? 
And there's something called the dividend aristocrats. So the top 25 sort of dividend stocks that are out there. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes if you want to head over and, and check those out. I also thought this was super interesting. So this doesn't quite have to do with dividends, but the 10 most traded and most bought stocks in the first half of 2016 for millennials, some of them were, um, you know, ones that you would normally think of, right? Because these are things we we come in contact all the time with Apple, Netflix, Amazon, Facebook, Disney, Tesla, Bank of America. Um, all of these are kind of the most popular stocks, both traded and bought from millennials in the first part of 2016. So what I really think you should think about is if you want to um, use a dividend strategy in your investment. Again, make sure it's in a tax advantage plan. Make sure that you're reinvesting those dividends so that you're continuing to buy more shares of the stock. Um, but then also think about, you know, maybe you might want to add in a little bit more diversification just because you are a millennial. Maybe you might want to have a few, um, you know, extra kind of stock index funds in there to just kind of balance everything out. But it's not a bad idea. It's not normally something that, you know, is recommended to to millennials, but I can I've read a lot of articles lately about, you know, really the upsurge in um dividend stocks with millennials because, you know, they are these tried and true um companies that I think a lot of millennials feel really safe with, right? You you love Apple, you love Netflix and Amazon and things like that, but um you know, they haven't been around as long as some of the, um, you know, really powerful dividend um, paying stock companies. And so maybe there's some sort of, you know, leery effect going on where, you know, you're just trying to, to make really smart moves. And I think, you know, nobody can knock that, right? Nobody can knock you asking questions. Nobody can knock you going, you know what, maybe we might want to be a little bit more conservative because of what we've seen. But you just want to make sure that your whatever investment strategy you're doing, you're just doing it very smartly, right? That it works for your life plan, it works for the goals that you want to achieve, it works for your own individual risk tolerance. Okay, last question. This is another investing one. It, it kind of goes, you know, in um, tandem with the last one we just talked about, but this is from Desmond. And he says, I keep hearing all this talk about having a well-diversified retirement portfolio. Honestly, between you and me, I'm not even sure I know what that means, let alone how to attack it. Can you help me understand what this means? I'm in my late 20s and have a pretty good job. I've been saving my 401k, but I, really, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm afraid that because I don't know what I'm doing, I may be making some mistakes. So diversified is really just having your money in lots of different segments, right? So again, in the last question, we talked about small cap companies, large cap companies, foreign, emerging markets, international. So it's kind of having your money spread out. And there's a little bit of, of a theory around that um, to be well diversified, you may only need to invest in three funds. Um, or their EF ETFs, so exchange traded fund equivalents, a total U.S. stock market fund, right? So that that fund is investing in all different companies, all different sectors in the United States, a total international stock market fund. So just as it sounds, investing internationally and a total U.S. bond market fund. 
Um, do that and you'll gain exposure to virtually every type of publicly traded stock in the entire world, large and small, growth and value, domestic and foreign, all industries, all sectors, as well as the entire U.S. investment grade taxable bonds, short to long-term maturities, corporate uh, treasuries, mortgage back issues, all sorts of things, right? So you are super diversified. And there's a lot of theory, there are a lot of articles out there about this kind of three fund approach to your portfolio, especially if you you just, you're, you don't want to bother, you know, picking individual stocks, you don't want to bother doing that, but maybe you don't want to do, you know, a target date fund. And a target date fund is literally just it has a date, and that is the date uh, for when you are perceived to retire, right? So if you were going to retire at 70, you know, you'd, um, you know, add, add your age, subtract your age, whatever. You, you get where I'm going with this to figure out, you know, which target date fund would match up with the expected date that you're going to retire. Now again, at nobody knows, right? Um, some people like to pick a target A fund that's a little bit longer than when they think they're going to retire. So if you think you're going to retire at 65, maybe you pick one that goes to like 67 or 70. Um, I, I wouldn't suggest one that, that you know, maybe um, is before, you know, the date you're going to retire, but I've literally seen everything. So there really isn't any right or wrong way to do this. Um, there's also a lot of articles out that, that argue about having a, a two-stock or a two-fund portfolio, so just the U.S. stock market fund and a U.S. bond market fund and totally leave out the international stock market fund. But really, you know, I think diversifying internationally, um, it normally helps your portfolio be a little less volatile since foreign markets, um, they don't always move in parallel with the U.S. stock market. That That's, um, you know... <laughs> It's tough to say because because theory speaking, that's the way it works. But we've seen lately is everything kind of moves together. And so when everything goes down, when something goes down, everything goes down. But, um, you know, theory speaking, they they tend to move in a little different sync than the U.S. stocks. So, um, you know, again, this all comes down to personal preference. This all comes down to your own risk tolerance. This all comes down to whatever goals you want to achieve. And nobody can answer that question for you except you. Um, so that's why it's good to work with a, you know, a financial planner, even if it's just a one-off to kind of get, you know, um, get a strategy in place that, that meets your own individual needs, right? Don't ask your friends. Um, don't pick exactly what your friends are picking because their life is going to look totally different than your life. So the moral of the story is you do you, let everybody else do them, um, you know, and we can all, we can all exist happily together, right? So again, as always, I love all your questions. Please feel free to um, head on over to the link that's in the show notes. If you want to ask a question again, I might just email you back directly, or we might answer it on an upcoming episode. As always, you can follow me on Snapchat at Shauna Game, Instagram at millennial underscore money, and Twitter at Shauna Game. Thank you.